It gives me great pleasure to introduce the president of the Chicago Community Trust, a speaker to the City Club of Chicago, who will introduce Mayor Lightfoot, Dr. Helene Gale. <laughs> Dr. Gale is president and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust, um, one of the nation's leading community foundations. The trust works with donors, nonprofits, community leaders, and residents to lead and inspire philanthropic efforts that improve the quality of life for the residents of the Chicago region. Dr. Gale is the seventh executive in the trust's history, and we're delighted that she could join with us today and introduce our mayor, Lori Lightfoot. Dr. Gale. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. I didn't know I was getting an introduction to do the introduction, but um, that's great. So first of all, uh, good afternoon to everyone. Uh, it's great to see such an incredible crowd out here today. And it really is my great pleasure and honor to be here to introduce our mayor and the important topic that she's going to speak to us about today. And the topic and the moment could not be more important. Our mayor is going to talk to us today about poverty. Now, I know poverty is not an issue that everyone likes to talk about, but it's something that we must talk about. It's a conversation that we must have if we want to come together to address an issue that has a profound direct impact on far too many families and communities here in Chicago. But equally, it impacts all of us as an interconnected community, and left unchallenged, it will have a compounded impact on our city for generations to come. As Martin Luther King so eloquently said, we are caught in an unescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Now many people know I'm a recent Chicagoan. I've spent the last several decades attacking health inequity and poverty nationally and internationally before I came here to lead the Chicago Community Trust. I came to Chicago with a commitment to working with its residents and its strong, vibrant civic community to tackle the toughest challenges here in Chicago. But instead of focusing on multiple issues, it became patently obvious that underneath so many issues that Chicago faces is this persistent and growing gap in wealth that increasingly plunges more and more families into poverty. And so that's why we at the Chicago Community Trust have made this issue of wealth inequity, especially the disproportionate impact on black and brown communities, our highest organizational priority. But I didn't come to Chicago to wallow in problems. I came because of a belief, and one that has grown stronger with time, that Chicago, as the great American city, can solve its problems when it puts its collective will together. And that Chicago can ultimately serve as a model for the rest of the nation and really demonstrate what it takes to make a difference. As we will hear shortly from Mayor Lightfoot, there is no one factor, one cause that led us to the circumstances that we're facing today. 
the widespread poverty, disaffection, hopelessness, and despair. The cause instead lies in systems of inequity that were created, refined, and reinforced over decades. So that's what brings us here today. We are at an historic moment here in our city. The excitement felt across Chicago for leaders like Mayor Lightfoot comes from the passion they bring to addressing more than just the consequences of poverty, but also the root causes and systemic barriers that create the conditions for poverty to exist and grow. This resolve, this fight, can be seen in everything Mayor Lightfoot is and everything she has done since taking her place on the fifth floor of the City Hall. In less than a year, we have seen the mayor and her team flip the switch on Chicago's systems of fines and fees, on fair work week, minimum wage, good governance reform, the visionary Invest Southwest program, and much more. Each step has been taken as part of her unwavering commitment to creating access to opportunity for every family, rebuilding the lives of every citizen, and overturning the obstacles that have destroyed lives and suffocated the dreams of untold millions for decades. And yet, as we are about to hear today, she is only just getting started, and we are thrilled to be her partners on this journey. It is her commitment and passion to making Chicago a city that works for everyone. One of the reasons I am so excited and proud to be in Chicago at this precise moment. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming to the stage and on this cold Valentine's Day, showing some love for our mayor, Lori Lightfoot. <laughs> Poverty is killing us, literally and figuratively killing us, all of us. Not just the souls that are locked in seemingly unrelenting grip, the people who are hungry, without stable shelter, no prospects for economic self-sufficiency. Those poor souls are suffering, to be sure, but so are we, the rest of us. When a child has to rely on her, upon her school for food or to have her clothes washed, we suffer. When a hospital feels compelled to build housing for a small percentage of people that use a disproportionate share of that hospital's emergency care resources, we are all losing. When the life expectancy gap for black and brown residents in one neighborhood is 17 years or more lower, than that of another neighborhood of mostly white residents, we are in trouble. And when we have to spend multiple billions of dollars, not just one year, but every year, without end, to police our neighborhoods because gun violence epidemic rages like a contagion, we are the worst for it as a city. Each of these markers, and many more, are the signs of communities in need of help. They mark a festering problem, signs that we are dying from the inside out. Am I making you uncomfortable? I mean to. Facing these hard truths is not easy. The process is painful, 
But face it, we must, and we must do this together, neighbor to neighbor. Without a united effort, a common sense of purpose, we cannot right the wrongs that have brought us to this place. For those skeptics in the room, let's look at a few facts. Nearly 22% of our residents live below the federal poverty level. That's one out of five Chicagoans. And in simple terms, this means that a family of four, you only have $26,200 for the year to pay for housing, food, transportation, health care, and forget about anything extra because the little money that you do have is spoken for, just juggling to meet your basic needs. And what happens when there's an unexpected cost? And this crushing economic reality for our neighbors is a fact that is essentially unchanged for the last 20 years. Meanwhile, one out of every 10 Chicagoans live in extreme poverty, meaning living at a 50% of the federal level, which amounts to $8.50 a day. 20% live on food stamps. And despite the incredible educational gains some of our CPS students are making, we live in a city where 17% of Chicagoans do not have a high school diploma, almost one in five. We know without a doubt the absence of good education and training um, puts a ceiling on your life's earnings and your health and well-being. And one out of four Chicagoans are forced to spend over half their income for housing, a circumstance officially sanitized and known as severe housing burden. Now let me break these issues down a little further. During the teacher strike last fall, as you can imagine, there were many things on my mind. But there were two things in particular that kept me up at night, and here's why. In Chicago public schools, over 76% of our children depend on school to eat. Over 76%. And 4.5% of our students are homeless. That's about 16,000, or roughly the size of the entire town of Prospect Heights or LaGrange. No food, no shelter. How can these children learn every day when their basic needs are barely met? When the schoolhouse doors are shut for them, as they are every weekend and all summer long, or during a strike, then what? And these sad realities underscore in discussing what poverty is and how we should address it, we cannot just talk about statistics. At its core, poverty is the absence of the absence of resources, of jobs, of stable housing, and the elements needed for people and communities to lead healthy and fulfilled lives. The kind of things that you and I take for granted every day because we can access them in abundance. And how did we get here? Now, I could certainly point to global macroeconomic forces that have led to wage stagnation, job displacement, and a general malaise and belief that it will never be morning in America again. More locally, I could point to our pension debt, taxes too high, crime too rampant as reasons why. But if I said those things and nothing more, I would be ignoring another hard truth. We did this. 
We have our fingerprints all over the impoverished conditions in which so many of our residents languish. We did this historically by using government as a tool to create and enforce race-based discrimination that killed, crushed, and systematically reduced the lives of too many over generations. A whole infrastructure perfected over time and savagely enforced for centuries, which at its core embraced an ethos that black and brown, Asian and indigenous lives did not matter, period. The past is very much our present. And we did this by voting for politicians who embrace this ethos and use every tool at their disposal to perpetuate the deprivation and disenfranchisement of people who looked like me solely on the basis of race, ethnicity, or national origin. And we continue to do this today and every day by looking the other way, saying it doesn't affect me or the problem is too big to solve. Government, we the people, created this monstrous problem, and we the people must solve it. What motivates me and why I know we must act is because of our children. One of the greatest joys, but also the biggest challenges I face every day as mayor, is thinking about our children. If you are a parent, you know one of the best things ever is bearing witness to young kids experiencing unbridled joy. And the best, the absolute best, is when I am invited into that experience, usually with an incredible hug. But when I allow myself to be caught up in this bliss, I don't just walk away and move on to the next task of the day. I carry those children, their words and expressions, with me. And over my tenure as mayor, I have seen way too many children in very dire circumstances, both physically and emotional, that I know will dramatically and negatively impact the trajectory of their lives. And what do I say to those children, their families and their communities in which they live, that we visit but will not truly see them? that our investments downtown will somehow trickle down for the betterment of their lives, or worse, that their lives are not as valued as others. How do I say that? And friends, how do you say that? How do we, as one of the greatest and wealthiest cities in the world, say that to our children? I cannot, and more to the point, I will not, write off the tens of thousands of our residents who live in poverty, who struggle to live from paycheck to paycheck, and whose daily existence is a struggle for food, clothing, shelter, and the dignity of life that we all need to make this life worth living. I pledge here and now to work tirelessly to see our people and to use the tools of government to set up every resident for success. Across this country, cities and towns are facing their own reckonings with their past. Many southern cities, for example, are still wrestling with the relics of the legacy of the failed Confederacy, 
whether manifest through flags or statutes or holidays or customs or practices. Other parts of the country struggle with reconciling what we did to our indigenous brothers and sisters. Here in Chicago, we must highlight and embrace the legacy of the Council of the Three Fires and teach our children about the United Nations of Chippewa, Ottawa, and Potawatomi Indians so that they know more than the story of Fort Dearborn. As a country, given the climate in Washington and other places, we are in a daily fight to preserve the importance of our immigrant and refugee communities and to protect our Jewish and Muslim brothers and sisters against the seemingly unrelenting hate that knocks on the door, or worse, walks down the aisle of synagogues and mosques. Here in Chicago, in this moment, we must also face our own history in order to determine our destiny. As I hope you now believe, poverty is at the heart of many of our woes. It is a significant moral and fiscal price tag that is real and growing bigger by the day. If we do not act now, boldly and decisively, we will continue to pay a heavy price. Our city will not grow. We will continue to lose population. The crisis among our less fortunate brethren will only escalate and the burden for the rest of us will balloon into further crisis. If we do not chart an entirely new course, we must also acknowledge that we are making a conscious choice and decision that our neighbors don't matter. That is a choice we need not make. My challenge is simple. I want to end poverty in Chicago in the next generation. Two months ago, I spoke before the Economic Club of Chicago, whose audience included many of the people in this room. During that evening, I outlined a vision for our city's economy over the next 10 years, a key component of which was this, continued growth in our downtown, but extending our economic focus and resources to our neighborhoods. Expanded, equitable, and inclusive growth. How do we go about creating that growth is what I want to talk to you about today. First, let me be clear. By growth, I mean growth that is truly comprehensive and inclusive and fully accessible. Growth will not only staunch the exodus of black families and the displacement of Latino families from our city, but also draw those folks back to get our city back to three million residents. And the ability of our residents to fully participate in it is, is the determining factor or whether or not we succeed. That kind of growth here and now in Chicago must address poverty directly and tackle it head on. As you know, some parts of Chicago have experienced remarkable levels of growth and economic activity in recent years resulting in our city leading the nation in corporate relocations and direct foreign investment, all of which are great things about which we should be proud. But as you can plainly see, that growth hasn't trickled down, and it hasn't done that for generations. These are slides representing geographic concentration of income over the last 50 years. For all our recent and long-term economic success, poverty and inequality have nonetheless grown at alarming rates in Chicago. 
Though poverty is felt across our city overall, it grew and became largely concentrated on our south and west sides, where inequality and poverty, 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 have now been the fact of life for decades. We as a city will stagnate, falter and fall behind if we continue to allow it to do so. So what about, what should be the next steps? First, as I noted, in addressing poverty in Chicago, we need to disabuse ourselves of the broken notion that poverty only costs us when we're poor. That neglecting communities is cost neutral because it is not. Poverty, both in the form of resource inequality and economic segregation, costs all of us, rich and poor alike. And here in Chicago, we are paying for poverty and segregation every day. Poverty weighs heavily on our public resources through its demands on public health, public safety, and family and support systems, and is costing us in population. Anyone who's heard me speak before has likely heard me ringing the alarm bell on population loss. We will not be able to grow and build our economy or ease the tax burden on our residents unless we attract, retain, and grow our population. And we must be precise about who is leaving and who is being pushed out. Our total population levels have experienced stagnation uh, or outright decrease recently. But the truth is that we have been experiencing population loss in black Chicago for many years. And now we're seeing Latino families being pushed out by displacement pressures, while we're seeing a growth in white college-educated residents. Previously, these overall losses were countered by an influx of immigrant and refugees. However, that's no longer the case, due in part to the toxic nature of the national debate around immigration policy. The consequences of overall population loss go beyond our tax base and earning potential. They are, of course, about people voting with their feet, feeling compelled to leave their home, their neighborhood, their social networks because of inequality and disinvestment. We are currently running the risk of losing federal dollars from the upcoming 2020 census by as much as $1,400 per person per year over 10 years a fact that could be devastating to our city and our economy, because not only will we lose a congressional district, we will also lose the economic power for our city and for our state. As I mentioned, the reasons behind our population loss are poverty and inequality, pure and simple. A fact which was underscored by a recent report published by UIC. Its author, Professor Stacy Sutton, noted, quote, People move when home no longer feels tenable. She went on to write, quote, Working class black folks are leaving because they can't afford to stay, which is not necessarily the same thing as gentrification. It's tied to things like fines, fees, cash bail, privatization of public housing, decline of jobs. Now, notably, the report also made a point of dispelling the myth of African-American population loss as being driven by reverse migration to the South. Those leaving the city are more likely to stay within the Chicago region, as well as the misinterpretation that violence itself is driving population loss, whereas violence and population loss are both consequences of the same cause, that is, poverty and inequality. My friends, our people have been suffering, and they've been suffering for a long time. 
They are our seniors and our children. They are black, white, brown, Asian, and indigenous. They're gay and straight, living on the north side, south and west sides, segregated by income and race, cut off from opportunity, and trapped. In a city like ours, where geography determines destiny, a child can be born in the wrong zip code, exposed too early and often to the anxiety, trauma, and violence of poverty and disinvestment develops hypertension or addiction or depression or has their own children while they're still children or all of the above. But whatever the cause, the result is the same. They grow up poor. They slip off the grid. And then, if they live and are lucky, they fall into societal safety nets like a fly in a spider web, living paycheck to paycheck, old cars that continually break down, worrying about the power being turned off and seeing parents struggle every day to avoid financial catastrophe. I want to be clear that the conditions of poverty and economic hardship are not an attribute. Those men and women, those families, and those communities of concentrated poverty in Chicago are among the strongest, most beautiful, most dynamic, and resilient in our city. It is we who have failed them. Part of the reason I care deeply about these issues because that story is one that I lived, in part, as a child. But for so many people in our city, with all of our wealth and talent, the daily story of their lives is exponentially worse. It is a story of poverty, the story of the absence of, that has been told and retold here in Chicago again and again and again. They are our neighborhood's strength, but our government and their city have not treated them as such. So the second thing we can do, right here and right now, is say, enough is enough. To turn around the fortunes of poor people in this city, my administration has taken a number of important early steps. We created the position of Chicago's first ever chief equity officer, Candace Moore. Candace and her team are making sure that our policies and our practices, from HR to the budget, are both designed to advance racial equity and measured to ensure they are in fact doing that. Equity here means power. And we need to use the tools of city government to be a help and not a hindrance. We ended water shutoffs for nonpayment by low-income homeowners because you know that water is a basic human right. We embarked upon an ambitious and ongoing reform of our fines and fees, so we stopped trying to solve the city's revenue problems by taking money from poor people. Instead, we have started giving them a chance um, to get right and keep a job to help our economy and their family. People should not be driven into bankruptcy, lose their driving privileges, lose their cars because of parking tickets or a city sticker ticket. And yet thousands, thousands of residents face this fate year after year. 
Our initial reforms, which we did in partnership with City Clerk Anna Valencia, brought $11.5 million in debt relief to about 11,400 motorists, and much more to come. We're just getting started. Also, led by labor, but also joined by employers, we passed the nation's most expansive for Fair Work Week legislation, which for the first time gives workers the ability to have an advanced schedule as mandated by law, to know when they will work so that they can plan for child care or elder care or a doctor's appointment and manage their cash flow without the risk of losing their job. We also passed an ordinance to increase the minimum wage now so that the fight for 15 will be won in July of 2021 and not later. And we also eliminated the discriminatory and offensive sub-minimum wage for workers with disabilities. And we are working with employers and community groups to ensure that every resident who earns public benefits through the Earned Income Tax Credit are actually able to access them and use them. That's getting cash into people's pockets, cash that they've earned. We have also embarked on Invest Southwest, our ambitious $750 million Marshall Plan for a pilot of cohort communities on our south and west sides that are brimming with potential but have been subject to generations of disinvestment and outright wealth stripping. We will change that around. In our 2020 budget, we made simultaneous investments in mental health, affordable housing, homelessness, and violence prevention because, as you heard me just say, each of these issues impact and reinforce each other and are both cause and symptoms of economic hardship and poverty. And our many long-overdue good governance reforms are, at their core, about making Chicago more equitable and accessible for every resident. They are a means to an end and not an end in and of themselves. Because if we don't have a government we can trust, one that is legitimate in the eyes of the public, we will not be able to move forward together or make the tough choices that we need to make to transform our future. Now, what ties all these together is the belief that improving our city through investing and empowering our people and investing in people struggling with economic hardship is itself a great bet. A belief that Chicago has what it fully takes to succeed, that the most effective government is the one that builds through inclusion and understanding, working with residents, not just for them, and works with partners who share those values. Throughout my time as mayor, my team and I have been working night and day on ways to uplift our residents, create opportunities, and include them in our economy. And while we are proud of the work that we have already accomplished, we have so much further to go. That's why today I'm excited to announce our next steps in addressing poverty in Chicago, as well as our broader program to tackle it directly and for the long haul. Just as housing discrimination and the absence of affordable choices have been central to creating poverty in Chicago, housing will also be a central tool to ending it. 
Our policy in Chicago will focus on stable, affordable housing as a platform and first step to wealth building. We are working with the... You can clap for that. We are working with a variety of stakeholders to complete a tenant protection package designed to help residents by giving them a fair chance to stay in their home, get a job, and build stability. The first part of this package will include an ordinance establishing just cause for eviction. Based on a recent study of data from 2010 to 2017, approximately 25% of all evictions are no fault, meaning the tenant did nothing wrong but had to move anyway. These no-fault convictions can give tenants as little as 30 days' notice to move, 30 days to find a new place to live that you can afford that's close to work and other responsibilities is barely any time at all. Our new ordinance will extend the notice period for no-cause evictions so that people can transition their belongings and their lives in a more reasonable amount of time. A second initiative uh, which we will urge the City Council to adopt is a just housing ordinance that mirrors a measure recently passed by the Cook County Board, which will require landlords to determine an applicant's uh, ability to rent before considering their prior incarceration history. And why do we need this tool? Well, the reason is, is that nearly 80% of Chicago's formerly incarcerated individuals are denied housing. That is hundreds of thousands of mostly black men who are shut out of being able to get an apartment after serving their time. As a result, Chicago's homeless population is disproportionately formally incarcerated, accounting for 55% of homeless men and 39% of homeless women. In the community of Woodlawn, we also hope to pilot a right of first refusal measure to address the displacement pressures from much needed investment there. This will allow qualified community buyers who can be, include previous renters of that same property to have a right of first refusal to purchase certain multifamily buildings when an owner puts that building up for sale. And we will do this in order to preserve affordable housing. And also regarding housing, we will be lending our support to our friends in Springfield who are working to pass House Bill 2299, which mandates sealing eviction cases that were either no-fault evictions or when no judgment was handed down. We know from the data that if you have an eviction of any kind on your record, you are much less likely to be able to rent an apartment. And finally... I eagerly await the recommendations of the city's Affordable Requirements Ordinance Task Force so that we can expand the tools available to address affordable housing. We are doing all these things because they need to be done, but we aren't stopping there. Aside from housing, we are and will remain focused on workforce development. We need every single one of our 77 communities to have a pipeline to middle-class jobs. And how do we get there? As a city, we must enhance our, our efforts to ensure that jobs as police, as fire, and other emergency responders, along with teachers and other professionals, are open and available to our entire city, particularly those, um, in, those people in those neighborhoods who have been locked out for way too long.
when a graduate of one of our police or fire academies walks across the stage, they are walking into a middle-class life. That life and all the benefits of middle class that those jobs bring must be open to all of us. I'm also going to use the new Office of Labor Standards to lead the charge in bringing care economy workers, such as home nurse aides and daycare workers, who are overwhelmingly women of color and undocumented, into the mainstream economy. For those workers, the home is a workplace, and it's time that we start treating it as such. And I will be calling on our friends in organized labor with a louder and more persistent voice to open up the trades to even more black and brown communities and more women. We are inviting you back into our high schools. Just last October, I established the Career Launch Chicago, an apprenticeship program that will help connect CPS students to local businesses while these students are completing high school. And starting this spring, we will recruit our first cohort of apprenticeships. We intend to grow this to 1,000 apprenticeships by 2024. We are bringing a path to a good job back to our high schools. These steps are important, and I need organized labor to partner with us in other more intentional ways to combat poverty in our city. And we cannot forget that poverty also takes a psychological toll. Our fellow residents are suffering. I see a level of despair and hurt that we as a city have not addressed and that we have continued, uh, allowed to continue. That is unacceptable. So it is imperative that we deal with a mental health crisis all around us. This should be a city where you can lead a healthy, safe life no matter where you live. The reality today is that where you live, to be blunt, very much determines the quality and length of your life. My Department of Public Health has a bold plan that you will hear about soon to increase life expectancy for all Chicagoans and reduce the stark and immoral fact that black and Latino Chicagoans in certain neighborhoods live shorter, more unsafe, and unhealthy lives than their white neighbors even a few blocks away. Also regarding health care, we have a number of important initiatives underway which will also impact poverty. These include the Family Connects program, also run by public health, which places a nurse in the home of new black mothers in order to reduce the crisis where new black mothers are dying after giving birth. We will expand and build upon that program. Because violence is a public health um, priority and poverty problem, my new Office of Violence Prevention is leading the charge to partner with communities to prevent violence while also working to strengthen community capacity to change the trajectory of families. That office's work is just beginning. We are also treating the opioid crisis as a public health problem, not primarily a law enforcement problem. That problem, by the way, it, like deep poverty, is concentrated in black Chicago. So that's where we are directing our resources. But for all that we can and must do as government, I know that we, as a government, will never have all the answers. 
Many people and organizations of goodwill have been toiling in these vineyards for decades. Let me briefly highlight Denerica Brooks, who works for Legal Aid Chicago. Denerica represents clients fighting to keep their housing in the face of unfair evictions. Denerica's work is deeply personal, as she grew up in Roseland, desperately poor, with her own mother needing the very services that Denerica renders to her clients every day. Please stand and be acknowledged. Thank you, Denerica, for all you do. Our city needs to uplift the work of Denerica and the countless others, and we need to move boldly forward together. We need your help. That is why I'm excited to announce that next Thursday, February 20th, I will be convening the first of its kind in Chicago Poverty Summit, entitled Solutions Towards Ending Poverty. Our hope is that we will catalyze a citywide, multi-sector movement to address poverty, create a first-of-its-kind, community-centered plan to end poverty in a generation, spotlight the ongoing commitments and cultivate partnerships, and make Chicago a hub for innovation in anti-poverty and economic mobility work. And I am inviting all of you to be a part of it. Our goal is to end poverty in Chicago in a generation and in doing so, transform the economic map of our city. To stop fighting with one hand tied behind our back and unlock the full power and potential of our neighborhoods, every neighborhood. To give every resident and a family a shot at the lives we all want to enjoy. Our people's struggle cuts to the core of the profound challenges that we face as a city. And all of it is holding us back. We will solve this problem because it must be solved to realize our full vision of who we can be. Our greatest success is when all of us are succeeding. Now, I'm certain there, there are some in this audience, or some who will hear about my words today, who will wonder why I would ever talk about poverty or worse, make meeting this challenge in a generation a signature part of my administration's work. Some likely believe that tackling intergenerational poverty, the kind that Denerica grew up in, is simply too big a challenge. Not too big to fail, but too big to succeed. Now, anyone who knows me knows that telling me you can't, <laughs> particularly in the face of righting a wrong, gets me fired up to prove the skeptics wrong. And if not me, who? Look at me. Think about my life's journey. I am called to this challenge because if I look away, I am denying a part of myself, a part of my story, my history. So when I look at this challenge, I think, there but for the grace of God go I. Now I am a Christian, a person of faith. And I believe in the teaching that is found in James chapter 2, which tells us, that faith without works is dead. I try to live that value every day, 
And in the position that the voters have given to me, I have even more opportunity, but I would say even more responsibility to live out that simple but powerful verse. Now, I know not all of you are Christians. I know that. Not all of you are people of faith. And I know that often in these dark times, our core beliefs are tested. But if you are a person with heart, someone who believes that we are better together, then walk with me on this mission of our lifetime. Walk with me and join the thousands of other people who labor every day to make life just a little bit better for someone in need. We can and we must do better for ourselves and for our children. I want to be able to look in the eyes of our children that I see every single day And I want to see reflected back to me, not neglect or despair, but that unbridled joy and hope because we have shown them love and compassion as a city and as a people. Join with me. Thank you.